Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that what we have not, you give us. What we know not, you teach us. And what we are not, you make us. For your Son's glory, and in his name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever noticed that much of life is filled with out-of-the-blue random moments, things that seemingly catch you off guard? If you've lived in Indiana for any sort of time, you know this is true. You step outside of your front door one morning, it's 75 degrees, the sun is shining, the birds are chirping. The very next day, you open up your door and it is 30 below, a black abyss with a 100% chance of snowmageddon. If you're a parent, you know this is true. In fact, not long ago, I was at a doctor's appointment, sitting in the waiting room. There was a mom sitting with her five or six-year-old son. And as the doctor walked into the waiting room and called their name, the son looked at the doctor and said out loud in front of everybody, Mommy, look at his big nose. Random. I think about the husband who came home one day to his young wife, and his wife asked him a peculiar question. She said, honey, why is it that you cannot grow any hair on your chest? The husband said, well, honey, hair doesn't grow on steel. (laughs) She fired back, yeah, it doesn't grow on rubber either. Random. And have you ever found that there are times when you open up your Bible and you're reading and you come to a spot that just seems, well, random? Of course, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter. It's a book that the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in Asia Minor who were suffering under great persecution. They were isolated in the midst of a culture that oppressed them simply because they believed in Jesus. So Peter wrote them to challenge them to stand firm in the midst of the culture, holding fast to their faith. And as he gets to the end of the letter, he says something random. Look at verse 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. The idea is of having one's eyes open and mind alert. These are the same words the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6, when he said, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. The picture this paints in our mind is of a guard standing in a watchtower, watching for any kind of threat that would come upon his fortress. Well, the question we must ask is, why is it that Peter has written this out of all things he could have written to these suffering Christians. Why is it that he tells them to be alert and always on watch? It's because of what he writes next. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is startling, isn't it? Not only do we have an adversary, but that very adversary is none other than the devil. 
and it gets worse. We have an adversary in the devil that prowls around with one aim, to devour you. Literally, to destroy us. So why did Peter write this? Why did God sovereignly place 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9 in your Bible? Why is it that you are here at College Park Church listening to a message on the devil? It's because of this. Peter was not writing these people to tell them something they did not know. Peter was writing these people to remind them of something they must not forget. And it is this, that there is a devil, he is your adversary, he knows your address, and he wants your soul. So my aim this morning is to answer three questions. Number one, who is the devil? Number two, what does he do? And number three, what are we to do? Let's begin with the first question. Who is the devil? Of course, we live in a day and age in which any talk of the devil is disregarded. It was C.S. Lewis who put it well when he said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in his existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. There are two ways to easily fall prey to the devil. The first is to not think of him at all. The second is to think of him too much. If we are honest, however, most of us fall into the category of not thinking about him at all. For some of us, when we think about the devil, we Think about a sort of fictional cartoon caricature of a, of a red man with black horns and a pitchfork. But yet, the Bible describes the devil in other ways. He describes him as a serpent in Genesis 3, a fallen angel in Isaiah 14, the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, a king in Ezekiel 28 and an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11. These descriptions and many more make up this mysterious one we call the devil, literally the diabolos, the diabolical one, the one who seeks to wreak havoc on the people of God and accomplish his purposes throughout the world. Well, you say, if this is the devil, and this is who he is, then what exactly does he do? Well, that leads to our second question. What does the devil do? Notice that Peter describes the devil in a particular way in verse 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil. The Greek word describes one who is an opponent in a lawsuit. If the Holy Spirit is the counsel of defense, an advocate with the Father, and the devil is the prosecuting counsel. In Revelation 12, 
John tells us that the devil is the accuser of the brethren who accuses them day and night. If you were to meet the devil in a hallway and you say, hi, devil, what do you do for a living? He would say, well, I'm the accuser of the brethren. Oh, really? Is that a part-time or full-time job? Well, I do it day and night. This is what the devil does. Oh, really, you say? Well, how often does he do that? Like I said, day and night. Well, what does it look like? Two forms. Number one, he slanders God to men. See, what does that mean? It goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3, telling Adam and Eve the lie that God isn't good. And friend, I don't know half of you in this room, but you have heard that lie this week. God's speaking into your ear with his slithering tongue that God can't be trusted in whatever dire situation you find yourself in and whatever needs you need met in your life. There is the devil telling you God can't meet your needs. He isn't worthy to be trusted. Slanders God to men. He tells us that God as a whole in his character is impure and not trustworthy. Of course, we see this in Matthew 4 with Jesus himself, where Jesus is hungry. He had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. So the devil shows up and tells Jesus, if you're really the son of God, then why don't you satisfy this craving you have for food and turn these stones into bread? What was the devil doing in that moment? He was telling Jesus the same lie he tells you and me, that God can't be trusted, you see. The first form is he slanders God to men. The second form is he slanders men to God. He leads us into sin, then accuses us of our sin before God. You say, well, what are you talking about? Have you ever been standing in a worship service, singing a great hymn, when all of a sudden a wicked thought slips into your mind? It's almost as if, I hate to caricature the thing, but it's almost as if Satan slipped the thought into the back door and then knocked on the front door and said, how could you think of such a thing in a worship service? And he does this all the time. He leads us into sin and then accuses us of it. But he also accuses us of sin that we've already been forgiven for. Have you ever been driving down the road, it's a peaceful day, music's on in your car, and then all of a sudden, you remember that sin? You know what I'm talking about? The sin that you would hate for anyone to know about. And yet you're a Christian, God has poured out his blood upon your life, you're forgiven of that sin, but in that moment, you remember the shame you once felt and the guilt that flooded into your heart when you did that. This is what the devil does. He takes the sin that's underneath the blood of Christ and puts it before your eyes 
says, do you remember that? How could anyone, much less God, love you after all that you have done? He's the accuser of the brethren. And friends, this is not something that Satan does Monday through Friday, nine to five. Satan has no days off. And what does he do? Slanders God to men and slanders men to God. He is our adversary, our accuser. But notice this is not all the devil does. Look with me at the text. Peter goes on. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He is described as a ferocious lion that has one aim, to eat you alive. And like any good hunter, he uses bait. I was joking with a dear friend that the nearest thing to hunting that I do is hunting in the fridge in the middle of the night for a snack. But for hunters, you realize that in order to hunt well, you must have bait. Well, what is the bait that Satan uses to lure in you and I? There are many, but we'll narrow it down to three. First, he uses the bait of pleasure. He tempts you and I to find our pleasure without God. He tempts you to believe that looking at that video on your computer will bring you the pleasure your soul longs for. He tells you that there is greater pleasure in disobeying God than trusting Him. He wants you to believe the lie that righteousness tastes bitter and sin tastes so sweet. Pleasure. A second bait he uses is prosperity. He tempts you to live for the riches of this world. He'll tell you that money will fulfill the longings of your heart. Once you get that next pay raise, you're finally going to be content, satisfied. He'll tell you that buying that next thing will fulfill the longings of your heart. He'll tell you that you can find security in the amount of your money in your bank account. And can I tell you, friends, just as a sidebar, when looking at church history, one thing is true, that prosperity has done more harm to the church than poverty. Because it is when we are prosperous that we become God amnesiacs. We forget about them. We think that all the riches that we've accumulated over time are because of our hard work and our good effort and our smarts. When at the end of the day, all things that you have today, yes, friend, even the breath in your very lungs is a gift of God. It's all from him. But yet the devil tempts you to live for the things that you can see in this world. The third bait he uses is pride. The pride of life. He tempts you to believe in your self-sufficiency and your superiority. He tempts you to see other sins as worse than your own. 
When you hear about someone falling into a certain sin, you do not thank God for his grace upon your life. Instead, you look at them and say, I'm glad I'm not that person. I could never do that. That's the devil. He tells you to believe the lie that you don't need other people to live the Christian life. Satan wants nothing more than for Christians to live on an island, to live upon their own strength without fellowship of other Christians. He he desires you to think today that all you need for a fruitful Christian life is your Bible and one church service a week, when in reality, friends, we need each other. That is the church. And once he lures you in through the bait he offers, he then slowly devours you over time. How? By making shipwreck of your faith, by making you believe that ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose, ultimate joy is not found in trusting Jesus but by trusting in the fleeting pleasures, money, fame, namely yourself. This is why, of course, if you remember, in Luke 22, where Jesus says something startling to Peter. Do you remember? He says, Satan has demanded to what? To have you. He wants you. He wants to devour you, to sift you like wheat. But what did Jesus say he was praying for Peter? He said, Peter, I have prayed that your faith would not fail. The very thing Satan wants from you, each of you, is for that very thing to happen today. For your faith to fail. It's what he wants. And he will stop at nothing until it happens. Friends, do you realize there is a party in hell whenever you and I ascribe glory to anything else besides God? The devil loves that. He celebrates it. And for each of us, his desire is that you would live out the spirit of this age. But friend, can I tell you something? If you marry the spirit of this age, you will be a widow in the next, because it will not last. But Satan begs that you would do it, that you would live for this world, and that your faith would fail. So the question is, well, what are we to do? If this is who the devil is, this is what he does, then what are we to do? Look with me at verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. First, he says, resist him. A better translation of the original would be withstand him. As a child, my brothers and I would go to the lake on lake trips, 
And one of the games we would play is each of us would walk one by one into the water until the water was about neck high. And the game we would play was called Who Can Stand the Longest? Because as the current and the waves rushed through and they tried to push you back, the game was who can withstand the current? And this is precisely the exhortation Peter gives to you and I. That we would withstand the onslaught waves of the attacks of the enemy upon our faith. Well, how are we to withstand these attacks, you ask? He says, firm in your faith. The only way you can stand firm against the current in the middle of a lake is by standing on solid ground. That which cannot move. Standing upon sand won't help you. But if you stand upon that which is immovable, then you can withstand the current. Well, we ask, what could we possibly stand upon in this life, in a life where truth is relative to all people? Truth is whatever you think to be right. Where are we to stand to withstand the attacks of the enemy? Well, I'd like to ask a question, an age-old question, WWJD. What would Jesus do? And luckily, we have the Bible, so we can ask another question. What did Jesus do when the onslaught of the enemy came upon his life, when he was tempted and tried? What did, what did Jesus stand on? Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, of course, Jesus has been led into the wilderness, the Bible says, by the Spirit of God. And as he goes into the wilderness, the Bible then says he is tempted by the devil. It then lists three temptations. We will look at one and then an overview of the rest. Verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Captain Obvious. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Well, the stage is set, isn't it? Here, the Son of God, the, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, is being tempted by the devil. Now, in this moment, if you had no idea what the rest of Matthew chapter 4 says, you'd assume some things, wouldn't you? I mean, here's the Son of God being attempted by the devil. We'd imagine that in that moment, Jesus would just call forth legions of angels and annihilate the devil forever. He is the Son of God, after all. We'd assume that Maybe in that moment, Jesus would snap his fingers and banish Satan to hell forever. We would assume that if you're a Star Wars fan, maybe he would shout out, I am your father. And it would be done with, over. But what's interesting about Matthew chapter 4 
is what Jesus does as a response to temptation. After each time, Jesus is tempted. He says these three words, it is written. And he quotes the Bible three times. Jesus does not stand upon his deity in temptation. He stands on the unfading, unshakable, everlasting word of God. Friends, that's our rock. He preaches the Bible to the devil. So how do we withstand the devil? Well, friends, can I just tell you, if it worked for Jesus, it can work for us. When Satan comes and speaks into your ear and tells you that you can find pleasure in what you see outside of obedience to God, you know what you do to him? You preach the Bible to him. You tell him Psalm 1611. In your presence, there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You're a liar. That's what you tell him. When Satan tells you that because of your past, God does not care about you, you know what you preach to him? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Devil, you're a liar. So can I ask you a question? Are you filling your heart and your mind with the Bible? Are you? Or do you expect that when Satan shows up at your doorstep after this service, maybe even right now, that the way you will fight him off is through scintillating orator or some past knowledge of a theological book you read years ago? Oh, friend, you are deceived. Or will you in that moment have a sword to fight him with? So can I ask you a question? Do you have a sword? Is there a sword that when you go to work on Monday morning that you have with you for when the devil comes that you can do battle with him, do you? If the Bible was enough for Jesus to fight the devil, it is enough for us. But this is not the only way we fight the devil. Peter continues on. He says, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We withstand the attacks of the enemy by being firm in our faith, resisting the attacks of the devil by standing on the Bible, And by knowing that the same kinds of suffering, the attacks you and I face every day from Satan, are being experienced by the church all over the world. No matter where you travel in this world, what Jesus said in John 16 will hold true. In this world, you will have trouble. It doesn't matter if You live in Africa, the United Kingdom, Southeast Asia, you name it, and you will find 
every Christian engaged in spiritual warfare. Count on it. If you look through church history, this rings true. Faithful Christians that were consistently being attacked by Satan himself. One thinks of the second century where Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, he was one day brought before the proconsul of his day and was commanded to offer incense to Caesar. The proconsul said, Take the oath, and I shall release you. Curse Christ. Polycarp replied, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. Why would I blaspheme my king? And they took him and burned him alive. Or I think about in 1729, a French girl named Marie Duran. She was in prison along with several other women in the Tower of Constance, which overlooks the Mediterranean Sea in the south of France. She was 15 years old. The reason she was in prison was because she held true to the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. The authorities of the day told her to renounce her faith in Christ. But she, along with others, said no. As a result, her older brother was hanged. He was 18 years old. Hoping that that now present death would cause her to shrink back from her faith and reject the very doctrine she had given her life for, they, they asked her again, will you reject the doctrine of justification? She said, no. So, what happened to her? Get this. She remained captive for 38 years. A 15-year-old girl who says, I'm not backing away from the Bible. The authorities say, fine, we're sticking you in prison for four decades. In fact, if you go to the Tower of Constance where she was in prison for those years, you would see a little inscription on the floor where she stayed. On the floor, she carved out one word, resiste, which means the word resist. Well, friends, here's the question we must ask. What is it that causes Christians to withstand the temptations of the devil? What is it? What's the motivating factor? What caused Polycarp to say, I'd rather be burned alive than reject Christ? What is it that caused a 15-year-old girl to say, I'm standing on my faith, I'm not denying Christ, and they throw her in prison for 40 years? And she resisted. What is it? And what is it that causes Christians like you and I to stand firm in our faith even when the devil attacks. What is it? Well, about a month or so ago, 
My friend invited me to watch a boxing match on his television. Not into boxing, um, even though I have obviously the physique of an incredible world weight boxer. <laughs> but I'm not into boxing. But I thought it'd be a good time to hang out with a friend, so I went ahead and, and went over. And as I went and spent time with him, we began to watch the fight. We began both of us rooting for the same boxer. Round one came and went, round two came and went, round three came and went, all the way into round six. And our boxer was getting pummeled. It got to the point where I just said, listen, dude, there's no hope for this guy. I love him, but he's going to have a messed up face for years to come. I'm out. And my friend said, no, 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 the fight isn't over. You need to stay. I I promise, just keep watching, keep watching. So I stayed, mainly because there were nachos. So... I stayed, and we're watching this fight, and round seven, round eight, round nine, round ten come, and he is just getting hammered. Finally, I say, I've had enough nachos. I'm going home. He said, no, 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 no. There's two more rounds left. Two more rounds. Just stay for two more rounds. I promise this isn't over. I mean, really weird. He said, okay, I'll stay for two more rounds. The 11th round came and went. He was staggering around in the ring, two black eyes, blood all over him. And then the final round came. And as the boxers met in the middle, you thought it was the demise of the one we were rooting for. But just at the last moment, he gave an uppercut and knocked out his opponent. I I asked my friend, I said, how did you know that was going to happen? He said, because the fight was pre-recorded. said, okay, we're not friends anymore. (laughs) But then he said this. He said, I had already seen the end of the fight. Hmm. What is it that causes Christians to withstand the attacks of the devil? It's because the fight was pre-recorded and they already saw the end. Revelation 12 says this. Now roar rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, and the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And then listen to this. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, testimony, for they love not their own love, Lives even unto death. What is it that conquers the devil? It is not good deeds. It is not a life well lived. It is the blood of Jesus that conquers the devil. Of course, we remember 
In Matthew 16, where Jesus asks the question to Peter, who do you say that I am? Do you remember his response? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said something so remarkable, you have to read it to believe it. He said, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you know what he was saying? He was saying the devil might roar, but the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, he runs as a coward because at the cross, when Jesus said it is finished, He was not only talking about defeating sin, he was not only talking about defeating death, but at the cross when he said it was finished, he put his proverbial foot on the neck of Satan and said, Satan, you are defeated forevermore. That's the gospel. Do we need any other message? There is power in the name of Jesus. So friends, when you and I fight the devil, when we are the boxers standing in the ring, taking a black eye, remember, we do not fight for victory, we fight from it. The church might take a black eye every now and then, but Jesus has already given the knockout punch. It's over. So we will not fear him, we will not succumb to his plans to live for this world. We will take risk for the gospel and we will fix our hearts on the day where we will be gathered with Christians like Polycarp and Marie Duran and the 28 Egyptian Christians that were slain this week. We will gather with them and we will sing forever and ever, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise because you have crushed our sin, you have crushed death, and you alone, Jesus, have crushed the devil. That is our hope, friends. And we will sing that song forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in this moment you would fill our hearts with great faith, resting upon the promise that there's coming a day in which the accuser will be thrown into the lake of fire and we will gather around your throne and sing forever, forever, forever. You alone, O Lord, are worthy of glory and honor and praise. And it's not because anything we have done, but it's because of your son. We thank you that Jesus is our great God and he has slain the dragon forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.